Welcome to the Life Success and Legacy Podcast. We're super excited. We are taking on a worthwhile endeavor at Life Success and Legacy. Our intention is to honor Nelson Nash, the man, as well as the infinite banking concept. We're going to create a series of resources, including podcasts and text, as a resource for others who want to truly understand with depth and clarity what Nelson shared in his book, Becoming Your Own Banker, as well as the many seminars and think tanks that we were fortunate to have attended during his life. So who is this intended audience? Well, we will use Nelson Nash's own words. It is written for the layman, not for financial advisors, but all life agents should be thoroughly knowledgeable of its content and practice. So whether you are an individual, part of a family, a business owner, or a life insurance agent, this is for you. So sit back, relax, and we will walk you through becoming your own banker step-by-step so you can reference the parts you want to revisit at your own pace. And we might have a little fun along the way. Hey, welcome back uh, to our next episode of the Life Success Legacy Podcast. We are taking the opportunity to honor Nelson Nash's work, specifically um, his book, Becoming Your Own Banker. Um, We are moving through the book uh, page by page, and we are now into section two, And we're picking up today on page 29, um, Willie Sutton's Law. My name's Chris Bay, and I'm joined by Mike Everett. And we are Life, Success, and Legacy in Lawrence, America, uh, Lawrence, Kansas. And Mike, how are you doing today? Good morning, Christopher. Things are well. Good, good. You got a a grandson coming to visit today, don't you? Oh, buddy, he's upstairs. I can hear the- You can hear I can hear the feet on the uh, floor upstairs already. He's going. (laughs) Well, we'll get through this. Uh, Willie Sutton's Law, um, it's good stuff in this one. We'll see if we get through the whole thing or if we just get through part of it. We never really know how far we're going to go. Mike, for our listeners, tell them who Willie Sutton was and why in the world would Nelson Nash bring him into a- uh, a book on finance. Well, the easiest way to do it is take it right out of the book. He says, I want to remind you that Willie Sutton from 1901 to 1980 was a notorious bank robber in our nation's history. When asked why he continued to rob banks, he said, well, that's where they keep the money. Yeah. <laughs> so Sutton's law was formulated thusly, whenever wealth is accumulated, someone will try to steal it. Yeah. So just for context, um, take us back to Nelson Nash, the man. And he had um, some pretty strong opinions and thought processes and things like that, which he didn't just dream up. I mean, the man, if you look in the back of the book at his uh, recommended reading list, yep. he is a he was a well, well-read man. And um, and he didn't come by his ideas just just, you know, frivolously. You knew Nelson. You were mentored by Nelson. <laughs> Give us some context as to where is Nelson coming from overall when you think about economically, Austrian economics and some of those things. Well, uh, you know, in, in reference to this particular uh, uh, page, Willie Sutton's Law, um, the whole idea of whenever wealth is accumulated, someone else will steal it. He had a uh, a direct correlation with how the government has been 
in an overreach of how they access our dollars through taxation. Mm-hmm. So uh, basically, he used Willie Sutton as as a notorious bank robber, but Willie didn't invent this activity. He was just a stellar practitioner of the art as an individual. The ph- phenomenon has been around since the beginning of time. Theft was actually the first labor-saving idea. Don't produce anything, just steal it. That which has somebody else has produced. Yeah. So the question Nelson always used, I mean, in every single seminar was, who was the biggest thief in the world? And he would wait for a moment, <laughs> not very long. And he said, if you answered the internal revenue service, he said, then you are correct. Mm-hmm. So Nelson was, uh, as a practitioner of IBC and Austrian economist, he felt that the government through the internal revenue service and taxation was a overreach of what they were doing, um, which in turn really uh, adheres to many of the ideas within the infinite banking concept. Yeah, I like the, the little story he, he shares. He talks about if you were at a shopping mall and, um, <laughs> and, and if I came up to you and I held a gun against your head and, and t- said, give me all the money in your wallet, everybody around the crowd would be, would be, you know, calling for my capture and my yep. being thrown in jail and all those kinds of things. But on the other hand, if I came to you and I did the same thing, I said, we're going to take the money out of the wallet and then we're going to distribute it to the whole crowd. We're going to share it amongst the crowd. People would be saying, well, now that's democracy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Nelson, Nelson had some, uh, strong opinions, uh, and, uh, and again, so his foundational thinking, where did his foundation come from um, and how he thought about economics? Well, um, a lot of his foundation, because he's a, he's a his, he was a history buff, mm-hmm. he read a lot of old, old, old dead guy uh, economists. And uh, Frederick Bastiat, back in the early 1800s, was a French economist and statement, statesman. And I love this little quote that he, that he puts in the book. He said, the law perverted and the police powers of the state perverted along with it. The law, I say, not only turned from its proper purpose, but made to it follow entirely contrary purpose. The law became the weapon of every kind of greed. Instead of checking crime, the law itself guilty of the evils it is supposed to punish. If this is true, it is a serious fact and moral duty requires me to call the attention of my fellow citizens to it. This was written back in the early to mid 1800s and it is, and its application is perfect for what is exactly going on today. In our world, yeah. In our world right this very minute. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. So Bastia really, he, he talked about uh, um, legal plunder. And he said in the United States, it really is called legal plunder. And, uh, and unfortunately, uh, we, we take this super abundance that we have and somehow it is redistributed within, um, 
different economic statuses. So is it good? I don't know. Is it bad? I don't know. It's not my call. <laughs> we're just we're just giving some context to where Nelson came from and his yeah, that's exactly right. Why he's writing these things. Um, he does talk a little bit about a parasite host relationship um, between you know taxpayers and the government. And, and how the government, you know, they, they as Nelson says, is a parasite um, living off the productive taxpayers or the host. And the, the parasite takes all the produce of the host and then both parties, um, government is a parasite and lives off the produ productive taxpayers, the host. It is self-evident that if the parasite takes all of the produce of the, of the host, then both parties die. And he says, you know, the government's not stupid here. Right. They're not. They're not. And then he starts rolling into these examples of like retirement plans, tax qualified plans, the, yep. the tax law and all those things. And this dance that happens between these tax laws that are established and then these exceptions to the law. Um, can you give some examples uh, of that? Well, if you go back, uh, you know, when uh, retirement plans and pension plans were created, um, it, it's amazing because they were originally called retirement plans, then they were called pension plans, and now they're called 401ks. So one of the questions I always ask is, why have they continued to change the names of these? Mm -hmm. Well, the retirement and the pension plan was originally created because the government wanted to create a way that, that the employer could provide something for an employee down the road. And the employer was responsible for that. Yeah. And we're gonna talk about a number of different facets in this, but then all of a sudden, the employer didn't like being responsible for what was going on inside these uh, pension plans. So they changed the name again to a 401k and they put all of the responsibility on the employee to manage that. Now, I don't know about you, but I did 401ks for years and years. Mm -hmm. And I'd get in this thing and I was completely confused about what I was supposed to be doing. So this is exactly what happens to many, many, many of the employees out there they look at all the different investment options and the things that they should be putting their money in. And they go, I have no idea. And yet the benefits people who are managing these things, 95% of these people have zero idea as well. But if you, if you get back to thinking about the, the 401ks, the IRAs, the mutual funds, we're supposed to put this money aside usually income tax-free, correct? Yeah. And we're supposed to do it for what? 20? And that's 30. communicated to us as a really good thing is that the income taxes are deferred. Oh my goodness. I mean, but yet this is what all of our friends are doing at work. This is what the people we go to church with. These are the people that we, we go out and we hike and bike with. Right. Everybody's doing this by the mm -hmm. way. So, um, we think it's a really, really good thing. Um, so we're putting our money aside pre-tax over into these things for 20 or 30 years. But then my questions are, the companies that are actually holding this money, what are they doing with that money? 
Well, they're out investing it or they're out loaning it out to whatever their constituency is. Yeah. So wait a second, we're supposed to let the money sit, but the people that are holding it are not letting it sit. They're doing 100% opposite of what they're telling us to do. Mm-hmm. So you know this, but the questions, the three questions we always ask is, number one, are income taxes going to go up or down? Well, in my lifetime, they've only gone one way. Number two, the money that you have right now in your checking or savings account or under the mattress at home, is it worth more today or is it worth more tomorrow? Well, the Federal Reserve's cranking out money as fast as they can. And what does that do to the value of the dollar? It devalues the dollar. So the dollar is going down and it has continued to do that since this whole thing was put in place. And number three, when thinking of income taxes, do we want to pay on the little amount, the seed, or do we want to pay on the harvest, the big amount? Well, I would like to pay as little as I possibly can. But yet everything that we've been taught to do with money, we've been taught to put it away tax-free right now. And then 20 or 30 or 40 years from now, start pulling it out. Well, let's see what's happened to taxes. They've gone up. What's happened to the value of the dollar? It's gone down. Those are worthless dollars, but yet that's what everybody is doing. So um, it it should be against the law. <laughs> I've got a, an example <laughs> that when you think about it, it seems like, and Nelson even talks about here, it's like the, uh, the, the um, fox guarding the chicken house. It totally is. So um, we have a client who, we have several clients who work at state universities. Yep. Which state universities are run by states. State governments. Right. State governments need what to function? Tax Money. Dollars. Okay. At these universities, uh, this I'll use one of the individuals, he is required Yep. To contribute to his retirement fund. Doesn't have a choice. Doesn't have a choice. And he can't take loans against it. And he doesn't have access to it. So in a way, the government run university is controlling that if you're going to work here, you have to contribute to this government run retirement program. And you <sighs> any choices over it. So you know, you start to connect some of these dots and go, wow. Yeah. That, that's, that does feel like an overreach. I, I mean, for me personally, when I worked for the school district, my yep. 403B, when I learned about IBC, I went to go get my money. Guess what? As long as I was working for them, I couldn't get it. No. Yeah. Pretty interesting stuff. So, okay. Um, flipping over here um, to the second page here. We're now on page 30. Um, it does seem interesting. Um, I remember reading that if you read the tax code, <laughs> the actual tax code is about 10% of the full thing. Yes. And then 90% of it are exceptions. Exceptions to, to the, the rules. rules. That's right. And it makes you stop and wonder, now wait a second. Why do we need exceptions to the tax rules? Why is that? Why, why can't it just be the 10%? Why does it have the additional 90% that are all these exceptions to the rules? Well, the lawmakers created the problem by spending money 
<laughs> that they don't have, which is in strangling taxation. And then they created a solution in the form of an exception to the rules that they created. Mm -hmm. So I guess bottom line is, who are they creating the exceptions for? They are creating the exceptions for themselves and that is the government themselves. So really, <coughs> they, they can and they will change their minds upon the slightest whim of times. So depending on what kind of dollars they need at that particular moment, they will come in and make another exception for the rule that they've already changed maybe once or twice or three other times. Mm -hmm. It's just like, it. well, you know me, I'll probably get all up in arms when we start talking a little more deep. So, about it. so I'll interject then so you don't have to get all up in arms. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the things Nelson says here is that they keep changing the rules so it looks like they're trying to help us out. Yes. But the real solution is to quit the government spending for all the programs, as he says, and get out of the lives of the citizens. It would be interesting. I know that many of our clients, just bringing this down to our, my personal experience, and that is once people learn about infinite banking, yep. the majority, and I'm being conservative because I think it's 100%, but let's just say the majority, 95% of our clients, if they have the option, they do not participate in their tax qualified plan. That's correct. And Nelson talks about that as if you give people the choice, they won't participate and then the plan goes away. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's that's pretty oh, interesting to me. It is, it is. All right, um, so all of this um, was caused by the income tax law, which a lot of people may not remember, but um, started in 1913. Yep. And Nelson says, before then, our country had surpluses in the national budget, yep. and the world got along very well. <laughs> but after this adoption, the American public now noted that it could vote itself a benefit through its representatives in Washington and send the bill to everyone else. Hmm. Such behavior will naturally lead to the mess that we wrestle with now. That's exactly, gotta, yeah, that's exactly ahead. where we're at. Uh -huh. Yeah, we've got a couple of quotes there. Um, that he includes there. Um, okay. So Nelson, let's let's bring this around. I'm looking at the second column here. Yep. He brings this around full circle um, because he is a strong believer in these needs being met on a person-to-person -person basis between like-minded people. Yep. At the UNB level. Us Right, which brings us full circle right back to the infinite banking concept and why yep. Nelson believes so strongly in it is that it is local, right? It's not us paying taxes and then the government determining where those dollars need to go. It's not us um, doing banking, making deposits into the bank and then the bank loaning out, you know, nine additional dollars through fractional reserve banking. It is banking at the you and me level. Can you give just real quickly an example of um, how our clients actually do that? Uh, how they actually do banking at the you and me level? Well, 
as most everybody knows, um, Nelson discovered this out of his own financial uh, struggles. And he realized that he had everything in place through dividend paying whole life insurance. Now, dividend paying whole life insurance is not a government idea. In fact, if you go back and you think about this entire section that we've talked about, the really the key part is the tax law started in 1913. Dividend paying whole life insurance is the only financial tool that was created prior to 1913. In fact, it preceded, uh, it preceded 1913 by more than 100 years. So it is not a tax qualified plan, but everything that was created after 1913, 401ks, pension plans, HR 10s, IRAs, mutual funds, the whole shoot and match are all tax qualified plans. So dividend paying whole life insurance is not compulsory. And so what we do is we literally take this old school whole life insurance policy, we tear the engine apart, we put it back together with the turbocharger so we can actually start showing people in their own situations how they can utilize a tool that's been around and been doing the same thing for more than 250 years. It's truly unbelievable. And the reason why people would do something like this is because not only do they care about themselves, but they care about all the other people that are in their lives. Because really, it's just whole life insurance. Yeah. But it's really a plan where they can actually have access to the dollars that are flowing in and out of their hands in an income tax-free environment. But yet, at one point in time, somewhere down the road, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to die. Mm -hmm. And my family gets all of the proceeds from the death benefit income tax-free. It's really pretty incredible. Yeah, it, it really is. When you think about it, it's really a, an amazing concept for our, for our society. Oh, it is. Be, because... Um, the transition of wealth to future generations is really a big um, dividing line for families that have been able to accumulate wealth. And this gets into race and all kinds of other things yep. and our laws in the past of whether you could own property or not, because it used to be if you owned your home, that was wealth that then was passed on to future generations. And if you couldn't own property, you didn't have that opportunity. Yep. Life insurance like that is an unbelievable tool for families to generate wealth and then be able to pass it on, by the way, tax-free yep. to future generations. So it's, it's really been an unbelievable um, benefit to society over the, over the many, many years. Yep. Yeah. Good stuff. This was a little bit, hey, we didn't follow our own uh, Parkinson's law, taking ourselves too seriously. We got a little, little tight on that one. Well, you know what? That's okay. I, you know, there's, <laughs> there's, there's times and places in the book that we need to be a little bit more serious. And, uh, yeah. you know, when, we, when we're trying to uh, create freedom for families, we've got to get, we got to get busy with people. Yeah. So <laughs> I love that part, actually. Absolutely. <laughs> Mike Everett, good stuff. I know you've uh, you've got some time set aside to spend with your grandson. I'm excited about yep. that, Mr. Emmett. 
And uh, thanks for your insights and sharing your experiences with Nelson Nash. For our listeners, um, check us out at lifesuccesslegacy.com. We've got lots of podcasts. Um, get yourself a copy of, of Nelson's book uh, or uh, The Case for IBC. Either one are great resources, and we recommend you read both. Um, and we've got some other resources on our website as well. Um, thanks for joining us. Our next, um, we will be jumping into the golden rule. What is the golden rule anyway? Those who have the gold make the rules. That's it. Play on words there. So check us out next time. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>